1: The first time I remember seeing my guest on this week's show on screen, I was pretty sure I was witnessing one of the funniest things of all time. What can you tell us about Tonya Harding? Mm,
2: I don't know a Tony Harding. (laughs) Aren't you her bodyguard? Well, you didn't let me finish well. I, I I don't know her well. How about Nancy Kerrigan? You haven't heard of Nancy Kerrigan. Oh, yeah. I thought you said Nancy Herring.
1: This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Paul Walter Hauser as Tanya Harding's bodyguard Sean Eckhart in 2017's I, Tanya. That film's unique blend of outrageous humor and intense drama may have been the perfect breakthrough role for Paul, who had spent years by that point making small guest appearances in comedies like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Key and Peele, but had never really been given the opportunity to show what he could do as a serious actor. In the five years since, he landed the lead role in Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell, appeared in two Spike Lee films, and most recently starred opposite Taron Egerton as a deeply disturbing serial killer in the Apple TV Plus series, Blackbird. Paul isn't our typical comedian guest on this show, but he does clearly have a serious love for comedy, including his longtime efforts to make a Chris Farley biopic happen. And as I said, he can also be very funny when he wants to be. So I was just really excited to have him on to talk about his fascinating career, which is, in many ways, still just getting started. Here's me, with Paul Walter Hauser. Thanks, man. Well, I'm glad we're getting to do this. I know we've been trying to set it up for a while. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. And congrats on the Critics' Choice Award nomination you just got. Uh, that was pretty cool.
3: Thanks, man. Yeah, that feels good. There's uh, a lot of good people in my category. I really, I haven't seen Chippendales yet, but I love Murray in uh, Murray Bartlett and White Lotus. Oh, yeah, he's and, great. Uh, and I really, I did see Matthew Good in the offer. And I thought he was the best part of the whole thing. He was incredible.
1: Yeah. Well, you, you're, uh, you're very good in, in Blackbird. It's, it's, it's a really fascinating show and a fascinating part. And I want to talk about it a lot, um, actually later on in our conversation, but since this podcast is really about comedy, um, I wanted to kind of start there because even though you've become probably better known for your dramatic work, you really started out in the comedy world, right? That was sort of what you were, you're doing in the early part of your career.
3: Big time, yeah. I saw growing up I saw guys like uh Chris Farley and Martin Short and Robin Williams and I said, you know, I wanna do what they do and then something changed when I got really into Scorsese and like Sidney Lumet. I started watching more grown up movies. I got really into Nicholson actually. I would watch Cuckoo's Nest and As Good As It Gets and The Departed and uh And I just really fell for Nicholson. I was like, well, Nicholson's always kind of funny, but he also can do drama. That was kind of the benchmark until a few years later. And I really fell in love with Phil Hoffman uh, from because I looked at Capote and along came Polly next to one another. And I thought, "Okay, well, this is this is the real benchmark is can you can you do 10 out of 10 comedy and 10 out of 10 drama? Can you kill it in in equanimity? And uh, and so that's kind of been the benchmark for the last, I'd say about fifteen years.
1: Well, he definitely could do that, and I think you have those skills as well. Um,
3: Thanks. I'm trying.
1: What were those early days like when you were getting into this? Was it um, were you auditioning mostly for comedies, or or how did you kind of get into the the business at the very beginning?
3: Uh, you know, there's like a lot of different ways to break in, and and you none of them are kind of like foolproof. Obviously, it's just kind of you do a bunch of crap and hope it works. But, but for me, I, I really looked at it like, you know, my heroes were Chris Farley and Phil Hoffman. Chris Farley went to second city. Phil Hoffman went to Tisch school of the arts at NYU and did theater. And I was like, okay, well, I need to go to a school. (laughs) Uh, Problem is I hate school. So I didn't last very long. I went to a small uh, parochial university outside of Chicago called Concordia University. And it was fun, but I didn't really learn anything. I just dropped out. I was represented for writing because I wrote two screenplays in high school. So I had a manager in LA named Joel Zadak. He had never even met me. He just read one of my scripts and we corresponded on MySpace and then chatted on the phone. And he became my manager. So I had a manager and uh, Mad TV got canceled, I think, in 07 or oh 0- No, it was probably 08. I forget. Um when it got canceled, he said to me, he's like, hey, I rep these two guys who are on Mad TV who want to break into features. Would you want to try to write a movie for them? And those two guys were uh, Key and Peel. So while I was still in college, I was writing a movie on spec for free for Jordan and Keegan to star in based on... An, <laughs>
1: that's that's pretty incredible.
3: Yeah, it was based on an idea that they had concocted about being black men in a corporate environment in which it's harder to move forward. So it was kind of this thing of like, what if like an Ed Harris type character played this white CEO of a advertising agency, marketing company, they need a black executive. So these three black men are all literally vying for that position at the company. And they go on a road trip doing all these different pitches and meetings and stuff where they have to kind of show up. And in a way it was kind of brilliant because it was like, you know, even even when a black man is being offered um, the opportunity he so deserves in that environment, he's still having to jump through a thousand hoops and basically fight some of his own friends to get the position. So in, in a way, it was kind of thought-provoking and reflective of different you know uh, uh, themes worth meditating on. But then it was also a crazy, wacky comedy, very much in the vein of Tommy Boy, where you're on the road and... And trying to do a job but then also like uh the kind of thing you'd see out of a todd Phillips movie like hangover or old school so i i wrote that for them never sold it and i just kept writing and and they went on to make key and peel and they put me in a couple of their comedy sketches
1: yeah i was gonna say that was one of your earliest uh acting gigs right on tv
3: certainly at least in los angeles yeah that was one of the first and then And then they went off and blew up. And I I just tried to do the character actor thing where I was, you know, going around doing bit parts in TV and film. I was always very advantageous and very uh, gregarious. So auditions were nothing to me. I would walk in with the energy of somebody doing uh, bench presses while snorting cocaine. (laughs) You know, I really, I walked into those with a lot of aggression and a competitive edge and a sense of homework.
1: Do you think that helped?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't, you know, listen, I didn't, I I didn't excel in athletics in, in school. So for me, I look at acting like creative athletics. I'm going into this room to
1: the competitive thing.
3: Yeah. I'm ready to knock your ass out. You know, that, that was my mentality. I was very kind to all my competitors, but in my head, I'm like, dude, I'm going to eat you with a fork and knife. And (laughs) Sometimes I did. Sometimes I didn't. There are plenty of guys that beat me out for a lot of parts, you
1: know? One of those early TV roles that I'm sure was a big deal when you got it was uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, just because that's such an iconic show. Um, you play a, a juggalo in a, in a scene with Charlie Day.
2: <laughs> All right, get what's going on with the clown makeup though? You're sticking out like a sore thumb. That's because I'm a juggalo? ICP, insane clown posse, yo. I don't know what that, is. you have a posse? Well, good. Stick with your insane clown people and you won't get jumped. They're a band, dude. I'm like a die-hard fan. We're called Juggalos. Where are your real friends, dude? I lost all my friends. Ah, shit, man. I lost all my friends, too. All right, I tell you what, you know, if you want to wear your clown makeup in school, wear it. I got your back. You won't get jumped. Yeah, I ain't exactly allowed to wear my makeup in school, though. Oh, really? Bunch of bullshit, That is bullshit! All right, kid, today's your lucky day, all right? We're gonna talk to the principal, okay? Because the professor just took an interest in you.
3: I was in college spring of 2009, sitting in my underpants with my buddies, drinking cheap cans of beer, watching It's Always Sunny five episodes in a row. That was just something we did. A year later, I'm on the show. And it's like, that's a pretty miraculous, weird thing that, you know, Hollywood does provide a weird environment in which the very thing you dreamt of only a year prior comes true a year later. And that happened with Clint Eastwood too. I was watching the mule with my parents Christmas of 2018. One year later, I'm starring in the new Clint Eastwood movie uh, on Christmas day, 2019. So it's pretty gnarly, man, pretty gnarly. But I, I was obsessed with, it's always sunny. It's still one of my favorite shows of all time. And, and, uh, you know, Danny DeVito, just getting to be around him and chat with him was A really big deal you know i grew up watching i probably saw the movie matilda 12 times i love that movie to this day and i and i love this movie he did called drowning mona with bet midler and casey affleck it's really one of my favorite dark comedies very underseen underrated
1: um so i mean obviously there was that one uh but the the first time that, that i feel like i really took notice of you and i'm sure it's true for a lot of people was i tanya which was a big opportunity to play this this real life guy in that story um what was the what was the story behind getting cast in in that film
3: they they asked me to audition alongside a massive crop of of younger white males probably you know 25 to 35 and uh and, you know, I, they had an offer out to a kind of an A-list type talent who then became who then became very busy and couldn't make the scheduling work, I don't think. So they were looking for somebody else. And I I just did a massive amount of homework. I watched the interviews with Sean Eckhart on YouTube. Like, I probably watched that 20-minute interview with him and, I think it's him and Diane Sawyer or Katie Couric, I forget. Um, I think it was Diane Sawyer. But I watched that 20-minute interview probably like, eight or nine times in a row. And I really was kind of living in in homeboy's skin when I went into, <laughs> to audition for him. And uh audition went well. I saw a bunch of other random dudes in the audition. I'm like, I don't think they know what they want. I got to show it to them. They asked me to come back for a callback. And I said, "It's who's it down to? It's always down to you and one or a couple people on a callback. And they said, it's just you. You're the only person attending the callback. And I was like... <laughs> the hell does that mean so yeah
1: they just want to make sure you can do it or
3: i don't know they were really i think it was more of a work session where craig Gillespie's like you know can he do this again kind of like hey i once did a backflip can you do a backflip again are you gonna break your neck you know and i i remember i did a lot of homework i memorized the crap out of the lines i got really really stoned on some good california marijuana the night before And I went in, and uh, the next morning had kind of like an after buzz. I showed up in a tracksuit with a coffee and a giant chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> and I—it was, it was the funniest thing. I sat on the floor. There was nowhere to sit because the whole the whole lobby of the casting office in Santa Monica was filled with a bunch of like Hispanic eight year old boys, and they're all like swearing at their mothers. And I, I find out that they're auditioning for the Scarface remake. And they're like (laughs) the young Scarface. So like, I'm exhausted. I'm I'm feeling a little bit high from the night before. I'm sitting on the floor watching all these kids swearing at their moms. And I'm like, this is so bizarre. And I hear some guy upstairs shouting, screaming his lungs out. And I'm like, what is going on up there? It sounds like a marital spout, like some dark dispute. And then uh, it quiets and I hear a door slam. And Aaron Paul... Walks down the staircase and storms out like he was, he was at the callback for the Jeff Galooly role, um, that Sebastian got, in. it, it was just a very bizarre, funny moment of like, I felt like I was still high. There's all these little boys swearing, <laughs> so, yelling at their moms, and I'm sitting on the floor, and Aaron, Aaron Paul's Paul storming out like he's gonna kill somebody. It was so funny.
1: So how did it go when you got in the room?
3: I don't know. What do you? How do yeah. you think it went? It must have gone, gone well. well. You know what I did too? I I do this, or I used to do it. I don't know that I'd do it again or or just not as much, but back in the day, I would do a little thing uh, where when I leave the audition, I'd say, guys, whether you cast me or not, congrats on this one. I think it's going to be pretty special. Pretty excited (laughs) for you guys. Can't wait to see it. And then leave the room. And what that does is that really instills this idea of like, I'm letting it go in front of them. I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm telling them like, "Hey, congrats!" As if my opinion yeah, or my there's matters. some
1: flattery in there.
3: There's some flattery, but there's it's also a status shift. It's a move, and uh, I did it on multiple jobs where I got the part, and um, and that was one of those things where I'm like, "Really funny script. Love Margo. This is gonna be a good one, guys. Congrats." <laughs> Walked out. <laughs>
1: I love that. Well, the thing that we were talking about, about the drama and comedy and finding that, um, that right balance or being able to do both, you really get to do both in this movie as does everyone else. I mean, it's such a hybrid of, of comedy and drama that I, I was really drawn to, um, Did you think about that when you were actually in it, making it, finding that right tone of how funny can I be here without it being total parody, but it has to be really funny, but it also has to be taken seriously. Um, How did you go about that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I tried to, you know, keep in mind, I was very lucky to have that footage of the real Sean. So if that's kind of my true north, I can always go back to that and go, am I doing anything more than what he's already doing? in these particular moments.
4: there's this feeling out there that the one who was power mad, the one who was megalomaniacal was you.
2: Incorrect, Um, I am a professional bodyguard and an international counter-terrorism expert. I, I work around the world for espionage agencies.
4: But Sean, you don't. But I do. But, Sean, we checked, and you don't. But I do. But you don't. But I do.
2: uh, I've actually been quoted as an expert uh, in terrorism trends and profiles. Where? Um, in... I believe it was a travel magazine a couple of years ago, during the Gulf
3: War. So that is wildly helpful. I use that on Richard Jewell as well because, you know, real footage, I have something to compare it to. But I would say, you know, more than anything, I always go back to the school of comedy that says the more sincere and dramatic or honest you are, the funnier it becomes, uh, depending on the tonality of the project. So when I think of my favorite comedic performances, immediately I think of Catherine O'Hara in Waiting for Guffman. I think of John Goodman and the Big Lebowski and it's like the the hallmark of what makes those characters special is they're they're these idiots who are just like kind of not aware that they're idiots and that was the whole character for Tonya.
1: Yeah. Um how do you feel like that project in particular changed your career? Did it open a ton of doors that that hadn't been opened to you before you got that role?
3: I certainly got invited to some different Parties and different opportunities that weren't previously afforded me. But I was still fighting. You know, I, I remember after the film came out, I started to get a couple straight offers, and that's very exciting where you don't have to audition. And I remember I got offered four episodes, three or four episodes of Hawaii 5.0. And they're like, the writers love you. They want you to come into the writer's room and help with the character. You get to work with Jorge Garcia, who I'm a fan of from Lost. And, and they said, uh, I think they offered me like thirteen thousand dollars an episode for three or four episodes, and it'd be a month in Hawaii, probably at a five star hotel. Yeah, sounds so, pretty like, good. Getting that offer, I was like, holy crap! You know, I was really excited. And I had just signed with CAA and Ryan Abushi, my agent, and some other folks there. They go, you, um, you know, you just, uh, you just start in Itania, which is doing awards business, and you just, um. You just shot Black Klansman for Spike Lee with Adam Driver. You know they're like you. you don't. You don't go from that to Wifi five oh.
1: <laughs> so you had to. So you had to pass.
3: I mean, I didn't have to pass, but I chose to heed their advice, which you know, in hindsight, was the right move. Um, but you know, it was hard. It was hard to craft a career when I just want to take the money and the free trip to Hawaii.
1: Definitely. Um, do you think it
3: was? And there, there have been a lot of those. There have been a lot of those little moments where, twice a year, I get offered something that uh, doesn't really help the actual career. It just would be fun or lucrative, and I've I've had to kind of step away uh, several times.
1: Yeah. Do you think it was I Tanya that led Clint Eastwood to think of you for Richard Jewell?
3: You know, that's that's a funny story that I haven't told that much. Which is, I guess, Jonah Hill and Leonardo DiCaprio were were attached to play the two leads that myself and Rockwell ended up playing. And uh the the project was in flux. They had switched directors from the guy that did the OJ documentary to Clint circling it and getting it out of the grasp of Disney because they had just purchased 20th Century Fox. And it wasn't really a for sure thing. They were they were kind of like open to whoever was going to play the role, be it Jonah or somebody else. And and somebody printed out a photo of me and put it next to a photo of Richard Jewell on a corkboard. And Clint saw it, and he goes, who's that guy? They go, oh, you know, that's the guy from Itani. You've probably seen him in Itani or something else. And Clint goes, "Get me some tape on him. I think that's the guy. And you're no, like, just, just from a photo? A photo. Which is, by the way, that's what made... It was a photo that made Robert Pattinson reach out to the Safety brothers. He hadn't even seen their work, but he saw a photo, a still image from one of their movies. And just coldly emailed them and started a relationship that led to the movie Good Time. So it was one of those weird things where it was a little cosmic and and uh, Clint watched, I think, my demo reel, which is like a five-minute acting highlight reel. And he saw scenes of me from I, Tanya, and Black Klansman, and what was the other one? Oh, Kingdom, one of the first TV shows I did, Kingdom. So Clint saw scenes from all three of those and he was like, yeah, this guy can do it, give him the part. So that was a straight offer, but it was not a contract. It was like, hey, do you trust Clint? He's trying to make the movie at Warner Brothers. Uh, And I just said yes. And I turned down the TV version of Richard Jewell called Manhunt, I think. Yeah, I was offered the the TV version, which was very lucrative. And I just took Clint's casting director and producer at their word and I turned down a high six figures just on the promise of Clint wants you to play Richard Jewell. That was really really scary. Yeah, it's me. hard
1: hard to say no hard to say no to to Clint Eastwood even if it's not a a done deal. Uh,
3: I would agree. I would agree. There are certain people I would do that for. Not everybody, but that was one of those things where the Bible talks about fear and love. You know, perfect love casts out fear, and the two things cannot abide. And uh, fear would tell me to take that huge sum of money for the TV show, and love would tell me to hold out and trust God and try to work with Clint Eastwood. So I. That was the choice I made.
1: So that one worked out. You got to, you know, do this movie. You were the the lead. This is your, you know, huge opportunity to be the lead of a movie, um, a Clint Eastwood movie, which is, you know, was bigger than you anything you'd done before that. What was the? How did you handle the the pressure of that? Of of having this movie on on you?
3: I you know I I tell people a lot. I the mornings I would head to set. You know, they gave me an exclusive driver who. SUV comes and picks you up at 6:30 in the morning or whatever. And in the mornings I would often I would often have a uh like a Starbucks cold brew and I would be playing like worship music from like Hillsong or Elevation Worship and I would be blaring Kendrick Lamar or Run The Jewels cuz I needed I needed gospel or hip hop and caffeine to just get me in this place where I felt I had what it took to go star in a forty million dollar biopic directed by Clint Eastwood at Warner Brothers. Um, that was previously inhabited by much more famous people than me. So, like, uh, I'm I'm not like a woefully insecure person, but I am aware of where the hell I am on the ladder. I know what rung I'm on, and it's not the top rung. So, when I get afforded an opportunity like that, I take it deathly seriously. Not to the degree of alienating people or hurting my reputation, but definitely to the degree of I'm pounding my chest, giving myself a bruise uh on my chest while singing Kendrick Lamar and showing up to set with sunglasses on my face. And it's cloudy. You know, it's not it's not it's not about it's not about ego. It's a it's very much about I have to play the part to play the part. Because day to day I just feel like this silly, silly ass Protestant dude who looks like he owns a comic book store.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you had some, some really great scene partners in that film as well. Uh, Sam Rockwell and Kathy Bates uh, specifically. I mean, you couldn't have really asked for anything better there.
3: Could not have dreamt it. I did. I, you know, what's funny is my first sit down with Clint was at Warner brothers uh, where he kind of sized me up and I'm just like, showed up in a shirt and tie I was trying to play it cool and be professional and uh, in that first meeting I said who's playing my mom and they were like oh we have some people in mind we don't want to say anything too early and I said when I read it I just kept picturing Kathy Bates and they all kind of had tight smiles and nodded and they're like she'd be great uh, little did I know they had an offer out to her and Rockwell Sam Rockwell is like one of my five favorite living actors I think. I think my top five is like Robert Duvall, Christian Bale, Nicholas Cage, Sam Rockwell, and maybe like Peter Sarsgaard. Um, those are like my guys. And um, and Sam was somebody that I had met previously at the Screen Actor Guild Awards. He was uh, I was there the night he won for three billboards. Um, I was there as a part of the Itania family, and uh, and I saw him on the red carpet, gave him a hug, and told him i said you and phil hoffman sarsgaard you're like my guys you are my dustin hoffman robert duvall uh uh gene hackman you know the guys that came up in new york yet yeah. and sam looked at me really seriously and he goes did you know phil and i like, never got to meet him but lifelong fan he's a, i'm a huge fan of his and he goes yeah man i miss phil and he like gave me a hug as i walked away i said i hope we get to work together and he said we will but he said we will like." deathly seriously so that that would have been january or february of 2018 and then a year and a half later we're shooting richard together.
2: we need to be a little less uh solicitous and a little more uh, righteous with these ass jacks i mean it's just hairs they'll grow back it's fine what'd you say they're just hairs will grow back You just say, hey. Why doesn't this shit make you as angry as it makes me? I am angry. You could have fooled me. You're angry. Of course I am. I don't know if angry is even a big enough word for how I feel. Come on, stop being such a doormat. Stop trying to be their best friend. You know, they're making fun of you out there. You know what they calling you? I know that. I know what it means when he says cop to cop. He doesn't mean cop to cop. He thinks I'm Do you? the Pillsbury Doughboy. I thought you guys were going to get engaged. Hey, Richard, you go for a cookie right now. I'm going to chop off your hands and shove up your ass.
1: So through all of this, you know, you're doing these dramatic films. You're also, you know, sprinkling comedy in throughout. Um, there was Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, some Reno 911. The other one that I wanted to ask you about specifically is um, you got to be on I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson, yeah. which is just about the best uh, sketch comedy show of the past. I don't know how many years, but it's it's just phenomenal. And, um, on, and, you're, yeah. and you're so funny in it. And I'm sure that must have been a dream. I, I read somewhere that you actually kind of pursued that yourself. You asked to be a part of it.
3: Dude, I chased it. I saw season one with my buddies uh, when I was shooting Richard Jewell. I, I had a bunch of dudes fly out to come hang out with me one weekend that summer. And I think you should leave. It just dropped. And I'm like, Oh, let's, let's catch an episode. It's only yeah, let's check
1: it out. 17
3: yeah. 17 minutes or whatever. <laughs> I throw it on. We're crying, laughing. I know. Like it's like eight of us. Ridiculous. in years. And I probably watched season one, three times before I emailed my agent, Rachel rush at CAA. And I said, Rachel, I saw you rep Tim Robinson. I will serve sandwiches and carry lighting equipment (laughs) on that set. Just please tell Tim I'm a fan and let him know I would do anything if he ever offered it. And true to form four or five months later, I got uh, an email with two sketches in it and they said, pick one. One of them was the one Tim ended up doing with the fedora in the courtroom. And the other one was, uh, you know, the, uh, the local theater actor who loves his wife. Yeah. I chose that one.
1: Yeah. What? Well, Why? how'd you, how'd you decide what made you choose that one?
3: You know, the, the fedora one is, is it's like the hat is as much of the joke as anything else. And I thought with the theater one, I get to kind of like be a bigger part of the joke. And, uh, and I also, you know, the idea of it just being this weird tangential thing about local theater. <laughs> yeah competitive people in local theater, I just thought that, that, that makes me laugh a little bit more.
2: How is your dress rehearsal?
3: Jamie Taco keeps taking my lines.
2: Who's Jamie Taco? He's the other henchman. He says my lines before I can even get them out, and then the director doesn't do anything. He, Jamie took like 15 of my lines. What do you mean he says them before you can get them out? He says them so fast before I can say them, and then they become his lines. I should just quit. I don't even know what I'm doing right Honey, no. But I'm never going to say my lines faster than Jamie Taco!
1: It's so funny, and yeah, I mean, and you get to do some real acting in that one, too. I feel like there's a, there's some pathos in those four minutes.
3: <laughs> there's a weird, like, John Candy thing going on in that. I feel like that's a John Candy character. <laughs> um, and yeah, Tim, Tim couldn't have been sweeter and more humble and and if he ever calls me again, man, I'm, uh, unless unless he asks me to do Full Frontal or something, I would, I would definitely show up to do whatever Tim Robinson wants me to do.
1: Coming up, Paul opens up about his most challenging role yet in Blackbird and reveals how working on that show
4: drove him to quit drinking.
1: If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with other comedic character actors like Nathan Lane, Jane Lynch, Henry Winkler, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now back to Paul Walter Hauser. So let's talk about Blackbird, which um, is definitely your most disturbing performance to date, I would say, as this uh, serial killer um, based on a real guy. Um, you've kind of described it as as being the most challenging work that you've done. Um, what was uh, what went into your decision to do it, and were you uh, were you a little scared to? dive into this particular pond
3: um kind of not scared which put a finer point on that so people don't worry about me all of a sudden i would say i wasn't scared because i i look here's a big thing anytime i play a real guy which i've done three or four times anytime i play a real guy just have to look at the picture to know whether i can play him or not i don't it's not an actor thing it's it's just something i intuitively know I, I already... I know I could play Teddy Roosevelt. I just know I could. I don't... I don't I can't explain it, but I know. Um, so there was something instinctual about that, but then you pair that with Dennis Lehane's dialogue and his writing, and you pair that with Taron Egerton, who's coming off Rocketman. Like, I, it wasn't like I made it a winning team. I was joining a team that was already winning.
2: When it's quiet like this, they call it riot quiet. Like the... Calm before a storm. Really? No. Yeah. yeah, or it just means it's quiet. Did you see anyone in
0: here?
3: No. Something missing?
2: Why was something missing? But if I was worried someone had been in my spot. I'd worry someone took something. I'm not worried. Someone was in my spot.
1: How do you go about trying to relate to a character like that? Because you kind of have to get inside his head to some degree. you have to understand where he's coming from. but it gets it gets difficult, I imagine, when it's someone this loathsome who's a you know, a serial killer, rapist, um, really you know messed up guy.
3: Hmm. Uh, I, oh, I haven't really, I don't know what my process is, but I will say what you see there is just me overcommitting. If you told me to act like a bear, um, I could do a cartoonish sketch comedy version of a bear, or I could really tell you I'm, I'm a bear. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to prove to you I'm a freaking bear. And then you would get weirded out seeing me grab a live fish and bite its head off. <laughs> but you have to be that kind of actor if you want that type of, you don't have to be that kind of actor. I'll say I have to be that kind. There are other people that that probably uh, are British and very well-trained and smarter than me, and they will do something tactfully. I I sort of immerse, and I do things as much for real as possible, and I call it a day. And for whatever reason, I think that does have an effect on how much people believe the performance often.
1: Yeah, but that must also take a toll on you right to go that deep into it
3: yeah definitely what is is that like i had a a moment in the shoot where i was just like i think i need to leave Uh, i haven't told this story yet because i didn't even remember it until recently i think somewhere in like july or august of the shoot i just left for like three days Uh, i had to like cleanse my soul i went to michigan it was kind of like dennis rodman and with the chicago bulls where he just goes to vegas for two days I, I had a a version of that uh on this project and, and you know, I had some personal drama too going on at the time. I was getting newly getting sober. I was newly sober and I was I was really having some issues of self hatred and, and sort of confusing confusing my priorities and sorry sorry to speak so cryptically about it, but it's just kind of I wasn't in a good place personally while playing a character was in a bad place so it was very much compounded and uh at the outset the first two three months of the project i was drinking and ingesting a ton of marijuana when i was off camera
1: and it was was it partly playing this role that you think you know made you want to get sober or or kind of got got you to that place
3: i think the role the role exacerbated my behaviors that were already there And then it was a launching pad for me to hit some version of a rock bottom to want to clean up. And by the way, a lot of this, you know, people are going to hear this and use their imagination and think I was drinking vodka in my trailer before heading to set. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about the producer tells me, Hey, just so you know, we shifted some scenes. Uh, You're not going to work Friday. So you have a three day weekend. And then Friday at, 1130 in the morning, I'm like, I kind of want to make a pitcher full of margaritas with mezcal. And then I'm drinking during the day. And then I'm ordering a bunch of greasy food. And then I skip my workout because I, uh, I feel like crap. And then I feel like crap more because I skip my workout. And then I get really stoned. And then I go online shopping and buy things I don't need. And then I hate myself because I don't like, it's a cycle, bro. It's like, it's a cycle of bad behaviors that the world probably looks at and goes, ah, some of that's not that bad. It is it is, if it's causing you to hate yourself. So I had to clean up my act. The, the shoot went like five or six weeks longer than planned. It went from four months to five and a half. We had a hurricane roll through. We had my air conditioning break in the middle of summer in New Orleans. I had to move Airbnbs twice. It was, a, it was, a, I got COVID. It was a ton of drama, bro. It was, it was a lot of shit.
1: Definitely sounds like a lot. Um, so how did things change for you once you did, you know, stop drinking, uh, stop smoking weed during the, the shoot? Did it, did it have an effect on your work? Do you feel like, or, or on as you, I mean, obviously I, I assume it had effect on your life, but how did it, what, what was that impact like?
3: I think the impact was trying to gain a sense of control. Trying to find newfound confidence where it hadn't been previous and to try to prioritize because there's an older version of me from recent history that only cared about winning an Oscar and an Emmy and being accepted by his peers, uh, and secretly hated himself and didn't want to make any life choices, uh, thus kind of magnifying and increasing, you know, my own detriment. So it, it that guy just, I was kind of sick of that guy. He's a good guy and he's still a nice guy, but he's woefully immature and insecure. He's prone to um, uh, self-harm ideation and uh, and he's not responsible and he's not going to be a good dad or a husband or even a good friend. If he is, that's fair weather and, and he's inconsistent. So the guy I am now, I'm really grateful for because I, I, uh, I'm I like 14 months sober. I'm super happy, genuinely. I. I don't have self-harm ideation anymore and I have a better capacity for love and wisdom because now I I know, I know what matters. You know, the Hollywood game is, it's not, none of it's real. You know, when you, what does Denzel say? He has some quote where he says, you'll never see a U-Haul following a hearse. And uh, I think about that all the time where I'm like, dude, you can become best friends with freaking Lady Gaga and uh, you know Brad Pitt. Uh, You can win three Oscars. It's not like your life gets any better. Your life just gets busier and more complicated. Uh, Your life gets better when you practice self care and you love yourself and you minimize risks and you and you do things that matter to you. You know.
1: Do you feel less ambitious, less competitive than you did a few years ago?
3: No, I'm viciously ambitious and I'm viciously competitive. I just happen to chill out a little bit and have some healthier perspective
1: possibly related but i i noticed that you are no longer on twitter um did that decision to to quit twitter uh relate at all to to getting sober and and sort of change a change of priorities
3: yeah you're not the first person at daily beast to notice that from my recollection
1: (laughs) there was a I, i remember there was some article about it a long time ago i had nothing to do with that but
3: uh you're good either way i just uh I just had to poke back. Um, you know, I the but the Bible talks about uh, you know, a wise man is slow to anger. We live in a current culture, especially for men historically, we've been doing this, where we're not slow to anger and we get outraged about everything now. And that's stuff that doesn't even affect us. We're just outraged because we've been doom scrolling. And in the time we were doom scrolling and complaining, we could have uh, been hiking or calling a relative who misses us or doing any number of things that actually benefit you or the world and not just being a uh, slothful, angry person. So I, I think I was a slothful, angry person. And, and I think in a moment where I felt attacked because I just made fun of a, I made fun of Oscar predictions. I just, I briefly poked fun. I think I said, these lists are psychotic. I said it to make people laugh because you're you're telling me Benicio del Toro is getting nominated for the French Dispatch. Probably not, and it's not. It's not because he's not good. He's great in that movie, but just in general, I know how the game is played, and he's not getting nominated for it. So, so in a moment when I just tried to crack a joke, I got people trying to assail me on Twitter and tell me that I'm xenophobic and that I'm anti-women. And all these other far-fetched, you got to cast out pretty far with the net type of um, allusions to what I was saying. And I got very offended, as I would imagine many folks would. Um, And in that moment, yeah, I said something mean-spirited and violent because I'm like, you're trying to take food out of my kid's mouth because effectually this could hurt my career. What What God showed me was Paul, they're not going to take food out of your mouth. You will, by the way you act. And I needed to be humbled there and realize that no matter how someone treats me, I'm called to love them and to be slow to anger. And uh, it was a very good lesson for me. And I thought about getting back on a time or two because it sounds fun on occasion, but it sure seems like I was ahead of the curve.
1: Yeah, it's getting less fun for sure.
3: Yeah. Thanks for letting me say all that. That was helpful for me to kind of process. That was oh, good.
1: good. I'm glad. Um, I want to kind of go full circle. And and you mentioned Chris Farley as a early influence at the beginning. And I know there's been this talk over the years of a Chris Farley biopic that you were maybe trying to make happen or, or wasn't sure if it was going to happen. Um, is that still something on your mind? Still something that you want to do that you're trying to make happen for real?
3: Oh, hell, I don't even know if I want to do it, but I, I feel like I'm called to do it if the movie's getting made. Um, no, no one alive will do or can do what I would do with that part. Um, <laughs> and that doesn't mean they're not talented or good. It just means if that movie's getting made, I'm the guy. I'm 36. I think there's a couple more years where I could still play him. I would say after 40, I, I wouldn't want to play Chris. I think I'd be too old.
1: Um you, I remember reading that you sort of had a, a unique take on it or something that you would want to do with it. What, what is your idea for what the, the ideal Chris Farley biopic would be?
3: I don't know. I, I think I'd like to see it a little more dramatized and see Chris's true point of view. Everybody's always saying like, and then Chris took a crap out a 40-story window in the middle of Manhattan. It's like, we don't need another Chris's stupid and fat movie we already we already got the docu stuff we already got the skits and comedy sketches i want to see a movie that's about that's about the real chris and then what's fun is as an actor i get to code switch on screen and you see me go from being the real chris to well i guess i've got to get in character and start (laughs) scaring folks a little son of a jump, like I could, like I could get into that whole thing. Yeah, and, you've, and you've got it. it. It would become very. It would be a very showy performance by the nature of the psychology, not by the writing. Just from Jump Street, that could be a fun, showy role for me as an actor, but also give Chris a bit of a voice and perspective that says, "Hey, uh, this guy had feelings and thoughts that were a little." Un, un uh, attended to, and instead he sacrificed himself at every turn to try to be the man he thought people wanted him to be, which was a boy. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, you just convinced me that this should happen before you turn forty. So I hope I hope people are listening and can uh, can move it along. So now I want to do our final segment called the first laugh. So I'm going to run through uh, some questions about first in your in your career and your life around comedy. Um, going all the way back to childhood, do you remember the first piece of comedy or one of the first that really made you laugh hard?
3: Um, yeah. My dad, when I was a little kid, my dad would show me um, Laurel and Hardy, the, the silent film stars, and I would laugh at their physical comedy. That was a big deal. And then the first movie I saw that was a big comedy that made me crack up was Home Alone. So the through line of those two things, Laurel and Hardy and Home Alone is uh, physical comedy.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny—that you could make other people laugh?
3: Um, You know, I think it was in my, I, I, in my early years, like, like age six to nine, I started to do impressions of family members and school faculty, and even celebrities. Like, like I did a Jimmy Stewart impression when I was like seven, eight years old, because um, we would watch *It's a Wonderful Life* every year. Um, so that that was kind of you know the idea of impersonating somebody else and the family being like holy holy shit you're eight years old and that's a pretty good uh, Jack Nicholson or Jesse Ventura like that was that that was cool that was the moment.
1: We talked a little bit about auditions and and how confident you are in auditions. Do you have any particularly memorable audition stories? Uh, maybe ones that that didn't go as well as you would have liked or um, oh, things you I didn't a, get.
3: Dude, I got a ton of bad ones. Uh, oh sheesh um it's like which one do i choose i i had an audition where i it, it was for a movie called oh man i'm so embarrassed even talking about it it's um <laughs> it was called quarantine 2 terminal or something and it was like a, a directed dvd sequel to a uh, a semi-hit like horror thriller film and the whole audition was me playing some like Loudmouth in first class on an airplane, and then I, I get this disease and turn into like a zombie and flip (laughs) out and freak out and try to kill somebody. So it wasn't so. Oh, dude! I mean, and no CGI. It's just like, hey, can you be a play a weirdo? So like, I, I freaking really went for it. I remember I went for it. Like I was told there was an Oscar to be won from that audition, (laughs) and. The casting director looked disturbed. They looked sufficiently weirded out, and yeah. I, to this day, I'm terrified of seeing that footage. Like I, I wonder if it still exists somewhere, and if somebody unearthed it, I'd be so afraid. Yeah, uh, to have it leak <laughs> and be seen. um And then the other one was Shameless. I auditioned for the show Shameless for a, a guest star. I think Zach croman beat me out. It was like a guy in a wheelchair, and. I did the audition and I thought I crushed it. It was like me, Frankie Muniz, Zach Berlman. There were like five or six dudes up for it at the callback. And I thought I nailed it. And when I was done, they go, thank you. They all just stared, said nothing, (laughs) and waited for me to leave the room. I was like, it, it was like something out of Eyes Wide Shut. It was like this creepy moment where no one said anything and they all stared at me like they hated me it was scary (laughs)
1: Um, we talked about a lot of your acting heroes um do you have a a memory about meeting a comedy hero someone from the comedy world who you just really looked up to and and what it was like to meet them for the first time
3: um i have a bad track record for like being too excited when i meet my comedy heroes it doesn't go well i embarrassed myself in front of uh billy eichner and marty short and a couple of people that I met that I was really geeked and then I just looked like an idiot. Um, but I, I will say that um, I, I had a really nice moment with DeVito, who's comedically inclined. And he and I just had a good conversation about family and comedy and politics and stuff. And Charlie Day was super sweet to me. Vince Vaughn and I became friends through Rockwell and I ended up asking him to do the role he played in Queen Pins with me and, Kirby Hall-Baptiste, and Kristen Bell. So I've had a lot of good experiences with comedy people from Charlie Day to Tiffany Haddish to Vince Vaughn. And then I've also had some really deeply embarrassing ones where I I hope to God they don't remember the incident when I re-meet them at some point. Uh,
1: Finally, um, do you have a story or memory from your career that really makes you laugh now but was not funny when it happened?
3: Oh, man. I remember on my first movie I did called Virginia, I I was just very overconfident. And and I would do these annoying things like, well, at the end of a scene when like, a, I think when one of the reels is done or they're switching the cameras, whatever it is, they have this phrase where they say, checking the gate. It's like a technical phrase. And so I, I like made up a musical, like a song about checking the gate. And one day I like sang it in front of jennifer connelly and ed harris and the director and it like they looked at me like this absolute tool bag weirdo like who where'd you find this kid i i think it went something like uh there's no need to relay there's no need to debate we're checking the gate <laughs> checking the gate and like i just kept rhyming "gate" with all these different phrases and looking back, I'm like, oh God, I must've been so annoying. I must've been. <laughs> you just thought like, everyone like,
1: would would enjoy that, just that they would like to hear the song?
3: Just me being me, uh, <laughs> worshiping at the altar of self-amusement. Yeah.
1: Um, that's hilarious. Um, well, Paul, thank you so much for, for doing this and talking with me and, and sharing so much. Um, I just think you have such a fascinating career and I really can't wait to see what you do next. And I hope that that chris farley biopic happens because you made me really want to see it today
3: yeah man uh lord willing we'll see if it just know that if it does I'm, I'm putting in the same amount of effort i put into larry hall into chris farley it won't be small thank you Matt. thank you for having me
1: all right i want to thank paul walter hauser so much for being my guest on this week's show you can stream all six episodes of Blackbird right now on Apple TV Plus. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Live is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.